Hi, we are in the second week, the home stretch of our Max Fund Drive, the one time of year that we very deliberately tell you that we need your financial support for this show to exist. Please help us out by going to MaximumFun.org slash join during this episode of Depression Mode and select Depression Mode from the list of shows. We have fun gifts for you, including a massive sonic sleeping pill and a plucky fish that wears sweatpants. I'm going to tell you all about that a little bit later in this episode. Again, go to MaximumFun.org slash join and select Depression Mode. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're here together because that makes us a team and we can rely on each other, even lean on each other sometimes, allow ourselves to be leaned upon. Because the world out there and being a person in it is a lot. So stressful. A kind of trauma buffet where all sorts of horrifying stuff is offered up all the time. We have political situations like the invasion of Ukraine. We have the cognitive dissonance of some politicians on the right and some right-wing media figures being on the side of the Russian invaders. We have climate change and the dread and despair that often goes with it. And there's COVID, which has caused psychological damage to all of us in a pandemic that is not over. And it's all happening in an era of instant, ubiquitous media that exists without any kind of standards or ethics. That's so much to deal with, you guys. Instant, unfiltered access to a chaotic and terrifying world. But you have to deal with it in some way. I have to. And so does my guest this week. S.E. Cup is a cable news host and political commentator. You might have seen her a lot on CNN. She has often appeared as a voice representing a conservative philosophy, which to her meant small government and strong defense. But she also supported marriage equality, and she voted for Biden. These days, with the right moving so far right, she's not exactly sure where she would be slotted. I was interested in talking to S.E. because she's been talking lately about an event that happened last year where everything caught up with her and she broke down. It was a very normal day. I was out running errands and, you know, very unintentionally and passively on my phone, on social media, as, as I generally was. And came across a video that was, it was a, a kid who was on a ventilator. This video of a kid on a ventilator was not unlike others I had seen, but for some reason, I, I couldn't breathe. I had a panic attack. I was in public. And I, I recognized it as a panic attack because I've been around a lot of people who've had panic attacks. And so I knew what was happening. And for the next three to four days, I had trouble getting out of bed. I had trouble reading, f- physically reading and making sense of words. I couldn't drive. I went to the grocery store with my husband and couldn't make a decision like turn left or right. 
let alone what to buy and what I needed to put in my, my grocery cart. It was so bad, which is the good news, because I didn't waste any time in getting help. I knew I couldn't just figure it out for myself. I couldn't just like sleep it off as I normally would when I'm feeling stressed or anxious. And I couldn't talk myself through it. I, it was so debilitating that I called a doctor. The doctor said I should probably go to the ER. Called just a general practitioner, family doctor? I called a therapist. And eventually, you know, pretty quickly got on a therapy course and a medication course. Took time off work. I mean, I couldn't do anything. Did you go to the emergency room? I didn't. I, I, I didn't. I was still kind of nurturing and protecting my privacy in this moment. And I just wasn't convinced that I needed emergency services. I mean, this is, you know, during COVID and I was also scared of going to emergency rooms. And so I, I didn't. And I waited one more day until Monday when I could actually, you know, see a doctor in a non-ER setting. I took the next few weeks Luckily, this was the end of summer. I had a vacation coming up. All of that was very good timing. To slowly crawl out of this and tried a couple different medications, ended up on one that really, really helps and doesn't make me feel any different. I, I describe it as kind of like a ceiling. There's a ceiling to my anxiety. I still get anxious, but it doesn't go to the places that it was going before this, which was... 24-7 catastrophizing. At this point, before I had this breakdown, it was, it was 24-7. I'd be driving and see an ambulance, and it was for sure going to my house. For people who aren't familiar with the term, and I think a lot of people are, but what is catastrophizing? In, in my case, seemingly benign episodes in daily life became the worst thing that could possibly happen. So I hear an ambulance. Well, it's definitely going to my son's school. My son is hurt. Now my son is very seriously injured. Now he's in a hospital. Now he's dying. And it always ends in the worst possible scenario in my mind. And I get there in two seconds. I was doing that constantly all day about things that weren't happening. But I would make myself go through them mentally as if they were happening. And in a way, it made me feel like I was conditioning myself so they didn't happen. It was almost a bargain. Like if I emotionally experienced this, I wouldn't actually experience it. Oh, you were striking a deal with your panic. I was. And 100%. That was my way of managing what had become crippling anxiety, anxiety I had nurtured for 20 years in life and work and didn't realize that I was doing that. Um, so by this time, the catastrophizing was constant. I couldn't turn it off. And so therapy and medication have put a ceiling on that. And then, uh, you know, I've gotten lots of great tools on how to manage it because I couldn't, I couldn't carry on on this, you know, anxiety train that I was on. So how long did this experience last? Like, you know, after, did it come to an end and you returned to who you were before you saw that video that day? 
I'm not completely the same. I'm, my brain is not the same. My brain feels like my brain changed. I've got a bit of fog. You know, I'm a writer. And so, you know, writing comes very naturally to me. And it's also a necessity. I have to do it, like to breathe. And it's become harder. It's become more challenging. I have to think about it more. My columns take longer, which is okay. But the way my therapist kind of described it to me is over 20 years of living with anxiety and also professionally covering awful things, I basically had an anxiety overdose. I OD'd on it. And that was helpful for me because it felt like I could start over. If you, if you OD, right, if you've had too much, but you can also go clean from it. And it's not completely possible to, to go clean, right? We're all going to have some normal, natural anxieties. And especially in what I do for a living, I can't not watch the news. I can't not see triggering things. Horrible things and conflict are, are part of the game. It is part of the game. And look, we all confront videos that are awful and we all confront bad news. But as a news producer myself... I also then, I have to ingest it, but I also have to output it and I have to make sense of it and I have to think about it and I have to, I have to translate it. And then I take in everything that people say about what I just said. And it's this constant input output cycle that if you don't intentionally turn it off, it never turns off. And so there were so many layers to my anxiety that I couldn't see it all and how it was all piling on top of each other. You know, for me, it felt like, well, I don't take my work home. I've got my, my family and that's all great. Even though I was incredibly anxious about my kid and then I've got work, but that's okay because I'm a professional. It's my job and it's my job to see all this and do all this. And, and I've, I've got it all figured out. I didn't realize how everything was intersecting. Everything was overlapping and compounding in my head. The video that you saw was was it a COVID situation that this kid was yeah. on a ventilator? Okay. Was that yeah. part of what you think triggered it? Was the, the anxiety that we're all having over COVID? I mean, any any trauma to, to kids is real tough for me. I, I've covered the Syrian war for 11 years now. And I've had to see things that don't make it to air. They're so graphic. Things I make myself see to cover this story the best way I can. But any child trauma is just real, real tough for me. I remember I was on the air when Sandy Hook happened and I had to break that story, uh, which was devastating and horrific. And I cried on camera because of course I did, because I mean, I'm human and I've never been afraid of, um, you know, afraid of my, my empathy and my humanity as a as a reporter as a journalist but that stuff's always going to be tough for me and so it wasn't just it wasn't covid like that covid is particularly traumatizing it was that it was a child who was struggling and let, let's do a slow-mo replay on on that not to make you relive a very mm -hmm. very upsetting time but like panic attacks are one of the hardest things i've found to describe to people who've never been through them yeah i've been I guess fortunate to have only had a few in, in my life, but they, they felt like death was about to Imminent. happen. Yeah. Right. So could you describe like 
physically what was happening to you? What were you seeing and what was that doing to you? I got real spacey and I couldn't breathe. I was hyperventilating. And I took my glasses off because my eyes were blurry. I got sweaty. I, um, <laughs> unrelatedly, I faint, uh, you know, occasionally and have since I was a kid. I, I don't know if it's like a low blood sugar, but it felt like that. Like I always get a little nauseous before I'm about to pass out. And, the, and so I know, I know when it's going to happen and I know to like get someone or sit down. But it was, it was, I mean, 10 times worse because of the hyperventilating and the sheer panic that something awful was about to happen. And I didn't know if it was going to happen to me or whatever, but I couldn't turn it off. And usually when I'm catastrophizing, you know, it reaches its conclusion and I'm done. This was unstoppable. I left the building I was in. I went outside, put my head between my knees, just tried to get my balance. And eventually within, I'd say 10 minutes, I could feel it kind of ticking down. And I got the car, went home and I went straight to bed. You could drive. You were able to drive in that situation. I was literally two minutes from my house, and I could. Uh, I drove very slowly and carefully, and then I got into bed, and I didn't leave bed for hours. Yeah. Had that ever happened to you before, a panic attack or anything of that magnitude? No, never. How long had you been dealing with anxiety, depression, those sorts of conditions? So I, I... Suffered with depression as a kid, and then not again. And like I say, I think I'd been carrying anxiety around for years and years and years without knowing. I mean, first of all, without feeling like I was alone, right? Like we all, we, we all had stressful lives and stressful jobs, and I just thought it was normal to be this anxious about my kid or this anxious about work or this doing transference, which I was doing. So if a terrible story happened to someone in... Syria, for example, I went through the process of feeling like it was happening to me. I was transferring everything. I was doing that for years and really just felt like it was normal and like I was okay. And this experience has not luckily involved depression at all. I'm not sad, luckily. And I know what that is. So I know to recognize that it's not, I don't have that right now. Depression's more than just being sad, of course, in a clinical situation. Of course. When I was a kid, I was clinically depressed and suicidal, and I got therapy and medication. And like I said, that hasn't come back since then. But I know what that is. And this was not that. This was anxiety. This was acute <laughs> anxiety. And, you know, the multiple doctors that I've seen and therapists or in, in agreement, you know, that that's what I'm dealing with here. You talked about uh, being on the air during Sandy Hook. You've talked about some of the things you've, you've seen related to Syria. Do you have PTSD? I'm not sure. I, I've always talked about, so I, I lived in Manhattan on 9-11. I was 22 and watched with my own eyes 9-11, not like on TV. And, you know, walked miles home that day, walked down to ground zero the next day and saw things that are horrific 
things I can't unsee. The way I describe 9-11 is like it's a tattoo I never wanted because it doesn't leave. I'm I'm no less traumatized and angry and sad about that day today than I was then. It is it's like right here, you know, right at the surface for me. Right at the top of your mind, right, right there. It's real easy to go back um, to where, you know, the state I was in. It changed me, changed a lot of people. It changed me. And so I feel as though I might have a little PTSD from that. But I don't know. And my therapist, this is what I love about her. And maybe this isn't for everyone. But for me, she doesn't encourage me to look back at events from my past and make sense of that. We really look forward at how do I manage today, tomorrow, the future. And that's a much more comfortable space for me, not because I don't want to look back or anything's too painful. I just feel like this isn't because of a childhood trauma or something. This is because of the way I've been living for 10 to 20 years, what I've been doing for 10 to 20 years. When you talk about not looking back, are you talking about not looking back to to childhood or not looking back to a year ago? Right, to childhood. Okay. Not going back and trying, you know, trying to forensically piece together, you know, how did I who how did I get made this way? Why am I like this? Um well, what's but wrong with... of course with... going back a year. <laughs> of course going back years and looking at what the, the, the trauma I've done to myself, my body, over the past two years, um, yeah. doing what I do for a living and, and living the way I have. What's wrong with figuring out how you were made by looking at what happened in your childhood? Like, to, to figure out the present and therefore the future, don't you need to figure out the past? I don't know if that's true. Um I think if I were dealing with some trauma-related incidents, yeah, but I had a great childhood. You know, I had a stressful childhood at times, but I had a great childhood. I have great parents. They're both alive. (laughs) I really see pretty clearly the path that led me here, and I really want to just deal with, you know, managing going forward, which might require some very significant life changes. We're working on that. Coming up, the effects of living under COVID and other deadly events. And are you really a conservative when Putin supporters are calling themselves conservatives? Hi, this is Kristen. And there are a few things that I believe help eradicate the stigma around mental health and hearing stories of all people, but especially those you would normally say, hey, wait, they have depression or anxiety or OCD, etc. Maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. And there are a few podcasts or other media doing it in such a wonderful way as Depression Mode, where we can sometimes find humor, where listeners are engaged and featured, and where people can just tell us what it's like, even if a lot of us already know that. Almost everyone I've recommended this podcast to has found someone's story they identify with, and that helps all of us, too. Thank you, Kristen. Kristen is a longtime listener of our show. She's a member of our Preshies group on Facebook. You can join that group, too, if you'd like. And Kristen really gets to the heart of what we're doing here. The message that you're not alone. You have company in whatever you're dealing with. We're a team. 
And so once a year, we come to you and remind you that the show takes money to make. We ask you to step up for the team. Shows like Depression Mode here at Maximum Fun rely on listener donations. It's the basis of our ability to make the show. We're not Spotify. We don't have massive corporate sponsorships. It's a lot more like public radio, but without the enormous size and scale and overhead. We think it's a better way to do things. We like connecting with our listeners. We like making this a family, making it a team effort. Here's how the whole thing works. The money you donate comes in. Maximum Fun takes a piece of it so the show can operate. Gabe Mara and Kevin Ferguson, our producers, they are employees of Maximum Fun. File hosting, RSS feeds, engineering, that's all Maximum Fun. Then the rest goes to the shows, equally divided among whatever shows the donor selects. The more shows you select when you join Max Fun, the more times that part of the pie is sliced up. If you only select Depression Mode, all of that money comes to Depression Mode. And so, will you help us? Will you help Depression Mode? Will you help us continue to make shows that connect people, make them feel less alone, make the world today a little more bearable? If you do, well, I have gifts for you. Join at any level and you get access to our bonus content, our BOCO, they call it. And our BOCO this year is Sleeping with Celebrities. It's an audio sleeping pill. It's a sonic melatonin. It's me in conversation with delightful guests, all of us intentionally being as dull as we can possibly be. You know, you might have laughed a lot at stuff John Hodgman makes in the past. You won't on this one. John Hodgman walks us through the SimCity video game for like 50 minutes. Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me compares different brands of running socks. Janet Varney from the JV Club podcast describes a very long, very dull car ride. And you can choose which part of this episode you want. It's it's very, very long. The whole thing is three and a half hours long. You can just jump around to whichever part you like. For instance, the whole thing opens with me giving a description of the similarities and differences between Dubuque, Iowa and Duluth, Minnesota. It's the most boring thing I could think to talk about. But somebody said, oh, I actually found that interesting. So I stayed awake for that. But as soon as Josh Gondelman, the comedian, starts talking about the daily routines of his elderly pug, that's when I fell asleep. That's what this person said. So, So Sleeping with Celebrities is available at any level. At $10 and up, you get Sleeping with Celebrities. Plus, you can choose the Depression Mode Patch iron-on or sew-on to your, your fanny pack or your denim vest. Ours features Oops Nope, who is our, our mascot for Depression Mode. He's a plucky little cartoon fish wearing sweatpants, and he's actually based on a real species. The Oopu Nopili is a waterfall-climbing fish and inches its way micro-inch at a time up the sides of waterfalls. And we admired that tenacity. And I also wanted him to have some sweatpants on. That's at the $10 a month and up level. There are more levels. There are activity packs, messenger bags, caps, 
and you can get a gift membership for a friend or an anonymous Max Funster. All that is available. All that information is available at MaximumFun.org slash join. I urge you to do that so we can keep making depression mode. That's really what this comes down to. Go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Find a level that works for you. I'm not going to tell you which one you get, and but, you know, whatever you select, you're going to have an easier time going to sleep later. MaximumFun.org slash join. Now back to the show. Back with S.E. Cup, she's been talking about the effect of a career spent looking at and describing some truly horrible stuff. I'm interested in this issue of of trauma and and the effects of it. And you know, I'm not I'm no psychiatrist. I can't label something a disorder, but I I do know that a disorder all that word means is it's interfering with the functioning of your life. And yeah. so when you look at the the trauma from 9/11, the trauma from Syria, the trauma of some of these other things, has it made your life more difficult to manage? I mean, obviously in this one panic attack situation, but in other cases, has it? Well, yeah. I mean, what I described, the years of catastrophizing that ended up being constant. I mean, that for sure impacted my daily life. Being so afraid of what could happen to my family. Yeah, of course that impacted my day-to-day life. I wasn't functioning well. Because of all of that. So so certainly. Because of the trauma. Yeah. Well, because I don't know if it was because of the trauma, but it was definitely because of what I was doing to manage my panic and anxiety. You know, that that made it really difficult to function. So in terms of what you were doing in the self-care arena, not in the career arena, not in the, the type of work you're doing. Both. Okay. In... Not allowing myself to take breaks that I needed, not allowing myself to distance from the work that I was doing, feeling like that was bad, that that was wrong. And then very unintentionally and passively ingesting news and social media. None of that was taking good care of my mental health because I didn't think I needed to. But now I've got so many good tools to do all of that more intentionally, give myself breaks, stop myself before I transfer, stop myself before I catastrophize, turn social media off when I need to, turn the news off when I need to. It sounds like simple things, but they've changed my life. So you have been covering politics and and writing about politics and current events issues for a long time. Do you think that from what you observe in yourself and in Americans, do you think there's a mental health effect of especially the last several years with Trump and with COVID? Do you think people are screwed up mentally from those experiences? It's hard not to see that. I feel like political divisions, and I'm not going to ascribe it all to Trump, but, you know, political divisiveness certainly which he fostered and fomented and preyed upon, I think has made people angrier intentionally and more anxious. Because, you know, the nature of our politics right now is is division and it's turning neighbor against neighbor. And that's rotten. That's a corrosive force. Add a global pandemic on top of that, 
add racial tensions on top of that, civil unrest. I mean, a lot happened to us over these past couple of years. And then I describe, I'm, I'm a conservative, a movement conservative, now more like a centrist, I guess, because the, you know, the Republican Party I knew has moved so far away from, you know, my, my version of what conservatism is. That's been disorienting. So if you've felt like part of a team for a very long time and you've watched that team completely abandon you and everything you thought you believed in and knew, and you've watched people you like and admire become people you don't recognize, well, that can be a trauma as well. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's gone through that. So I think a lot has happened to us politically, socially, culturally, and then a pandemic that I think a lot of people, I know this because I hear from a lot of people, are going through a lot of the same things that I have been going through. I want to talk a little bit about political media, which as I see it, as I read it, cable news and cable opinion shows seem to thrive on conflict, seem to seem to thrive on there are good guys and bad guys, and yeah. it's not a, not a shade of gray. Do you think that industry, which you have been a part of, yeah. is culpable for creating a lot of anxiety for people? Without question. It's not always intentionally divisive, even. Like, it being generous, sometimes the division as a construct is unavoidable. You've got Republicans arguing with Democrats, and that's what you're covering, and why a bill is hung up in, in Congress. I mean, that's a, that construct of these two groups against each other is necessary. But other times, it's, I think it's very intentional and manipulative. None of the networks, save for maybe C-SPAN, you know, are, 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 are innocent or, or, you know, have completely clean hands because we are so much more defined these days by our enemies than our friends. And we are constantly seeking heretics instead of converts. And that is where, unfortunately, the center of gravity is on cable news. And I don't think that's where the center of gravity is in America. Because if you look at, pick a poll on any issue, any quote-unquote hot-button issue, from abortion to guns to immigration, the majority of the country is in the middle. The fringes on either wing are much smaller. And that's why Americans don't feel like this two-party system is really representing them well. Because while the loudest people are arguing on these edges about no restrictions for abortions or no abortions at all, most of us are somewhere in the middle on all of these issues. And no one's talking for us, certainly not on cable news. Yeah, nuance doesn't go over big, as I understand it, in in ratings sometimes. You, you talked yeah. about how, how nobody's hands are clean except maybe C-SPANs. You work for CNN. Are yeah. your hands clean? You know, all I can say is I'm certainly a part of this machine, right, that's dealing with politics in the way that we do. So, of course. But all I can say is 
when I finally had control, like total control, I had my own show, I absolutely refused to have people on just to yell at them or embarrass them. Just to point at them and say, see, look how stupid this guy is, or this is who you need to hate. I refused. I would have people on who I disagreed with, you know, virulently, but because I respected them and still wanted you to hear their opinion and hear us kind of talk it out. I, I didn't have that luxury, you know, until I had my own show. When you're a guest on other people's show, or you have a, a show with lots of other co-hosts, you don't always get to call the shots. And so all I can offer is when I got to do it myself, I did it the way I wanted to do it. You once upon a time worked with Tucker Carlson, and now in your Twitter feed, which I skimmed a few minutes before we started, <laughs> you have some knocks against Tucker Carlson. Mike Huckabee wrote the foreword for your book. You had some knocks on Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's not the same person, but is politically aligned. You're retweeting Occupy Democrats. What changed <laughs> for you? Well, nothing. I didn't change at all. I still believe in all the same stuff I did five years ago. I still believe in that protectionism is bad. I still believe in lowering the debt and the deficit. I still believe in a strong national defense. I did not change my beliefs. This party, in chasing wherever Trump wanted it to go, completely changed what was important. If you look back, I grew up going to CPACs, you know, in my, in my political growing up. It's a big conservative conference. Yeah, in Washington, D.C. And you could find at any given CPAC eight to 12 panels on the debt or the deficit. At the last CPAC, the word debt and deficit did not appear in the title of a single panel. Wow. There were three panels on wokeism. There were two <laughs> panels called Lock Her Up. Two panels. Two panels. Two pimps. Seems like a and, lot of redundancy. And, and one of them was called Lock Her Up For Real. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so don't ask me what's changed for me because uh, I have not. So my knocks on Tucker, first of all, are never personal because I, you know, I, I know Tucker. I, I know Mike Huckabee. And believe me, I've knocked him too, not just Sarah. They're not personal. They're on principle. On principle because I've watched people become people I don't recognize and say things that would have made them vomit five, 10 years ago. I wrote a book defending American Christianity. It's very hard today to defend evangelical pastors and televangelists who are telling their flock to just pray COVID away. So that's where it comes from. Not because I've become a different person. I haven't. But that's how disorienting life has been <laughs> in the past few years. I think disorienting is a really good word for it, too, because, you know, it I think I'm a little older than you. But, you know, I remember I remember the Gerald Ford presidency <laughs> very, very distantly, <laughs> but it's there a little bit in the Carter presidency. Okay. And I kind of uh -huh. grew up with this idea that, OK, this side disagrees with the other side. But they're all Americans, and they all ultimately want the best thing 
for the country. They disagree right. on how to get there, but I know the Tip O'Neill Ronald Reagan relationship has become yeah. a bit mythologized and apocryphal. But the the notion of it is there that so you know, to the Bill Clinton Newt Gingrich relationship. I mean, you can fair point to, to add a more recent example, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you know when we see coverage of of Russia and Ukraine, and you have you have Republicans siding with Russia, it's it sort of feels like the ground has collapsed, and that can. That yeah. can have a huge psychological effect, and it can have a mental health effect in an area where news coverage is ubiquitous and and everywhere. It makes you feel crazy. Yeah, it's messing people yes. up. Yes, it makes you feel insane. Some of it is intentionally gaslighting, right? That it's meant to, to make you feel nuts. But I think other people earnestly believe this new garbage. That Putin's just going in because he's clearing out the bio, you know the bio labs in Ukraine. He's really actually a good good guy. And what did he ever do to me? Nothing. And so, I mean, that is bananas. I'm a child of the Cold War. I grew up with Reagan, and like, I can't believe these people are defending, contorting to defend Russia and Putin, and redefining. It's not just it's not just Russia this happened around the insurrection too redefining what democracy is reinventing what patriotism looks like suddenly it looks like going to the capital to overturn a democratic election and using an american flag to beat a police officer that's now the new patriotism it's sickening or preventing people from voting. Or preventing people from voting. Yeah, instead of encouraging everyone to vote because that's what a democracy is. Because democracy. No, disorienting is the baseline. And that's the least, that has no judgment value. When you say this is disorienting, it doesn't attach a judgment to it. And that's true. But that's the least of it. You know, this redefinition of patriotism and this redefinition of democracy makes me nauseous. And it makes me very nervous and anxious because I don't see it ending or getting better or reversing course anytime soon. And that, you know, that can have a very anxiety inducing effect when you can't clearly see an end, a resolution. Just ahead, how S.E. Cup navigates social media when it is so often a swamp of hate. This is Abigail from Mountain View, California. I donate to Depression Mode because I've learned so much about myself by listening to other people's stories. Things I thought were weird quirks that I had might be symptoms of something treatable. Also, because the Depression Mode Facebook group is the best place on the internet. Thank you for that, Abigail. John Moe again here. Abigail mentioned our Precious Facebook group, and that is a huge part of our show. I am so impressed by observing the Precious group, and I enjoy being able to stand back and watch it because it, it pretty much runs independently. I set it up, and then people just took it from there. People talk about the show sometimes, but they also help each other out with situations in life and with medication and with therapy. People laugh. They share perspective. It's really nice. And I love it, too, because it's a natural extension of what we do here on Depression Mode. 
You're not going to find cures for mental illness in the Precious group or here. You're not going to find something where I say, just do this and all your problems will be solved because that's not how it works. You will find people in that group and here on the show who go through the same things that you do. People who get real about being a person in the world right now and struggling sometimes. And all of that is better. It goes better when we're together to lean on each other and help carry the load. And yes, have some laughs. Laughs, I believe, are important. Speaking of laughs, we laughed a lot when putting together our bonus content for this year's Max Fun Drive, Sleeping with Celebrities. It's a mega episode. It's not even really a, a show. It's more tactical audio designed to put you to sleep. It's my conversations with interesting people who are being deliberately uninteresting. I ask people like John Hodgman, Peter Sagal, Janet Varney, Lisa Hanawal, Josh Gondelman to talk about the most boring things they could think to talk about. And uh, boy, they came through. They were really <laughs> into it. So it goes on and on and on. It's designed to give you something to listen to instead of your racing thoughts when you're trying to go to sleep. We do hope that it helps you sleep, but it's also pretty good meta-comedy or anti-comedy because, you know, these guests were, some of them were barely holding back a laugh. Others were just dead set on being deadpan and really committing to the bit. You'll never run out of stuff to listen to because it's three and a half hours long. So that is available even at the $5 a month, what we call the High Fiver Club. If you join at the $10 a month friend of the family level, you get uh, Sleeping with Celebrities and you get Oops Nope on a patch. Oops Nope is our uh, waterfall climbing fish that is the, the mascot of Depression Mode. The show Just the Zoo of Us offered it to us as a good symbol of, of our show. This is a type of fish that climbs the sides of waterfalls, climbs up waterfalls just a little bit at a time. So you can get that patch, you can sew it on or iron it on to your denim jacket and then go ride your motorcycle. It also comes with a membership card, which is very cool. At $20 a month, the Diamond Friendship Club, you get all the things I'm, I've already talked about, plus the Maximum Fun Creativity Pack. Um, it lets you get into a creative headspace. It's a deck of 54 cards to provide inspiration. Each card has an activity suggestion from your favorite hosts or pals at Max Fun, designed to inspire you to enjoy friends, nature, food, you time, art, other kinds of fun. Comes with three postcards, a piece of non-hardening, colorful modeling clay, and a custom black wing pencil to encourage you to make your thing. I wrote one of these cards. I'll let you just hop in there at the $20 a month level and, and see which one that I made, but I think you'll like it. And the, the hits just keep on coming. At $35 and up, you get the messenger bag along with everything I just described. At $100 a month, you can get the access pass, the headquarters access pass, giving you quarterly virtual hangouts with MaxFun hosts and staff. I hope to see you at one of those. Okay, so that is all to donate to Maximum Fun, to donate to Depression Mode. Here's what you do. You go to MaximumFun.org slash join. You select Depression Mode. That's important. Select Depression Mode. 
Find a level that works for you. I really appreciate it. I want to keep making this show. People seem to enjoy it. People seem to get a lot out of it. And um, let's let's keep rocking it on, huh? Maximumfun.org slash join. Back with S.E. Cup, and we're talking about how to keep your mind in a healthy and operable place while living in a modern world that will happily break your mind for you. The other thing, you know, I mentioned going through your Twitter a little bit and reading the replies on your Twitter, it's really hard to map because I can't tell who's agreeing with you from the left or disagreeing with you from the right or vice versa. Who's being ironic about it? Who's being sarcastic? Who's being <laughs> sincere? It's a it's a real migraine in your in your mentions. And you know, yeah. I, you, you mentioned that taking a break from social media and like watching your consumption of social media, you've got, I mean, what do you make of that swamp that is in there when you're, when you're talking on Twitter? I mean, you can really get, I think, sucked in to the soap opera of Twitter, what you just described and learning the language, you know, fluently of all of the different voices coming at you. I long stopped looking at comments and retweets and mentions. I'll see some some of my friends, my colleagues, and I'll, you know, I'll interact with friends. But long before my anxiety got the better of me, I, I stopped. Because when I was coming up in my 20s as a young woman, you know, you get a lot of unwanted attention. Yes. Wrong kind of attention. Yeah, both of the amorous and scary variety, but also of the rape fantasy, mm. death threat variety. So for my own sanity, and I, I, I'll never forget this. I had a meeting with an FBI agent long ago to talk about one of the threats because they had an update for me. And this was like an actionable death threat. And so they were pursuing it. But this FBI agent told me in the meeting... Hunters, there are hunters and there are howlers. Hunters never howl and howlers never hunt. So the people you're hearing from on Twitter or sending you these emails are, are howlers. And they are rarely the people that actually go and do stuff. The people that go and do stuff you will never hear from, which is scary. But in a way gave me permission to stop looking at it at all. So I long stopped doing that. but. What I found most helpful post-anxiety breakdown is, again, to go on intentionally. And what I liken it to is going into a grocery store. You know, I go in with a list, I'm, sh I'm sure you do too, of things that you know you need. That's why you're there. It's not like you go in and stuff jumps into your cart without you asking for it or wanting it. <laughs> you don't hang out in the bread aisle just for laughs just for laughs and hoping someone entertains me there. <laughs> so I, I thought about how I go into social media. And like I said, I'll go onto Twitter because I'm waiting in line for something. Mm. Or I'll go on because I want validation. Or I go on because I want to start something. Or I go on maybe to get some information, some news. If you don't have a specific goal, the algorithm is so strong, it's going to give you what it wants, not what you want. And so you're going to get more catastrophizing videos. You're going to get more 
hate or this or that stuff you're not there for, maybe. It's going to give you drama. It's going to give you the drama and the division and a false sense of what's happening in the world and where, you know, where the, the lines of division are. And so I know I can't avoid that, but what I do is I go on intentionally. And if it's a work day and I know I'm going to have to see some tough videos because I'm covering Ukraine or whatever, at least I can mentally prepare for that. And it's not going to happen to me when I'm least expecting it. And then I can also decide, well, I'm, I'm not going on right now because I don't need anything from Twitter or Instagram right this moment. I don't need anything. And maybe I can get that validation from somewhere else, from uh, my family, you know? Maybe I can clear my, my brain from the news by taking a walk. Maybe I can get whatever I thought I needed from social media in a healthier place. So thinking differently about how I use social media was in a way very simple, but so life-altering. And I work at it every day, but it's my biggest piece of advice that I pass on from my therapist to, to, to friends and folks going through this. Yeah, my therapist uses the expression borrowing trouble. She she says, don't go borrowing trouble. You have enough trouble. Don't go looking for extra trouble. Don't borrow trouble. Oh, I love that. That's great. great. (laughs) Question that I I think I originally thought of for you as a, a media figure, but I think it applies to a lot of people because the idea of establishing a brand, establishing a voice for who you are in the world right now. It's more of a th- it's traditionally been more of a thing for those of us who who talk into microphones regularly, but it's more and more the case with with anybody, you know, and they're linked in, like trying to establish their yeah. career. It feels like that is something that messes with people too. It's like the the idea of who I am versus how I'm presenting and what are the tactics behind what I'm presenting. And in your case, you've got a show with your name in the title. Yeah. How do you navigate that to who SE Cup is to the world versus who you are to you? It's so easy today to package yourself, right? You've got yeah. Instagram. You're told to. You're told that it's important. Yeah. In, in terms of business and in terms of opportunities. Yeah. And it's just so easy. It wasn't always easy. You know, when I first was coming up, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Instagram. I joined those kind of late. And, you know, I used Facebook, but honestly, if I wasn't going on TV or writing a column, there was no mechanism really for me to be out there or share my thoughts or tell you who I was. That is all so easy today. It's very hard not to have that feel real, like that, that avatar, that package is the real you. My Instagram is me, but it's not all of me. It's the best of me, right? I mean, that's generally you're curating, you're curating your life. It's the one where your kids are always smiling for photos and not the ones where they're yelling at you. <laughs> I actually do. I do post what, what I call the quest for the one good photo because it's, impo- <laughs> it's impossible with the kids. But yeah, I mean, you curate your life for public consumption and you don't have to be a public person to do that. Everyone does that. And so it's very easy to feel as though those two things are the same. You and your curated version are the same. And the farther apart those two things are, 
the bigger that chasm, I think the more that messes with you mentally. If you can make those things as aligned as possible by posting honestly or posting less, then I think you're, that's probably going to help mental health a little bit more. What do you know now about mental health and your mental health that you wish you had known a long time ago? I don't know anything about mental health the way I don't know anything about children. I know about my kid and I know about my mental health. What do you wish you knew about your mental health? Well, then it's fragile. I really thought I was impervious because of what I did for a living, because of what I had been through, because of what I had seen. And because I'm a happy, well-adjusted person, I thought my mental health is strong. It's good. I didn't realize how fragile it was and that my quote unquote managing it was not managing it at all. That it's something you have to protect. I wasn't careful with my mental health, my news consumption, my social media consumption. I wasn't careful. And I don't say this to scare people, but like it can get out of hand. It can get beyond you. And your mental health is something to protect just like you protect your body and your physical health. And I think the great news is that, you know, podcasts like this or I'm a, I'm a Bravo-holic and I, I have a, a PhD in the Real Housewives <laughs> franchise. And I, um, you know, in one of the last reunions for the Real Housewives, there were two husbands there. One, an Asian-American man, one, an African-American man, both talking to their communities about the importance of therapy and mental health in communities where it is often stigmatized. Well, that is an incredible sign of progress that I, you know, I, I say that 2020 was an awful year for mental health, but 2021 was a fantastic year for mental health because you have people coming out like Naomi Osaka, who I actually got to interview about mental health, and Meghan Markle and athletes and celebrities coming out to say, I'm not okay, that's okay, and I'm getting help. And that normalized so many conversations around it, conversations like this one. And my goal is to get to a point where I can just meet up with a friend and say, well, so my therapist told me today. Like, like it's just a normal part of your life. You can talk about your mental health and seeking treatment for it without missing a beat, without it being weird. So I think that's really, these are great signs around us that it's becoming okay to talk about. I mean, I I think it's similar to what we went through with smoking and drunk driving and some of these things where we said, hey, this yeah. is this is killing people all over the place. Let's get together and do something about this. I think the awareness is a huge part of it and just talking casually <laughs> like we yeah. are. Yeah. About it is is just it's just so important. And so I've taken to being on a podcast or even in, on the news and casually dropping it into conversation. That's my I've, I've done my small part for the day <laughs> by, <laughs> by casually dropping this into conversation that, you know, my therapist gave me some great advice or I, you know, I was taking a, so, a social media break. And so X, Y, Z, you know, just talking normally about it. Well, and it's become, too, a thing that you're expected to 
that's the side of history people want to be on. You know, if somebody's really struggling, you want to be the one saying, oh, yeah, this is important. People should pay attention to them. We should applaud them for talking about it. It wasn't the case like three years ago. <laughs> you know, no, even now, there are still idiots and jerks. Sure. Who want to use their platform to say so-and-so is just a whiner or an entitled whatever talking about mental health. I mean, what a terrible side of history to be on. Yeah. You don't need to go there. You don't need to minimize someone's struggle with mental health. No one's requiring you to use your platform in that irresponsible and really gross way. People choose to do that. And so that's that's still happening, but it's I think more and more people are talking about mental health much differently than they did in previous generations certainly, but even like you say just 5 years ago. Yeah. It's a good sign. Essie Cup, thank you so much for being with us. Listen, it's really important to me that people are having these conversations. So whether it's with me or anyone else, I'm just so glad you're doing it. And I'm honored to be here and share my story. Thank you for giving me a space, a safe space to do that. I appreciate it. All right. That's what we do. That's S.E. Cup. Spelled with two P's, you can find out more about her at secupshow.com or on Twitter, if you dare go to Twitter, at secup. Two P's. Next time on Depression Mode, imagine your debut album is a hit. Critics love it. Fans love it. It soars up the charts. But it doesn't feel like you. And you think, maybe I should go back to retail. Because the thing that had worked made me like not happy and didn't make me feel seen. And it wasn't fulfilling at all. I had did all these like amazing things and I found myself on the under end of it feeling worse than when I started. Like at that point, I, I was like, I would have rather just stayed at retail by the end of it, which was like really dark. Like I remember actually vividly having a conversation with my management and like, is there any way that we could just like end all of this and I just can go back to retail? The musician Shamir joins us. Again, the place to go to support our show is MaximumFun.org slash join. We want to keep making the show. We think you like it. Uh, join, get, you know, find a level that works for you, and you can get the Sleeping with Celebrities bonus content mega episode uh, that is, I really hope, knocks you out in, in all sorts of ways. Most primarily puts you to sleep. You can get the Oops Nope patch. You can get the activity pack. Find a level that works for you, MaximumFun.org slash join. This is the last show this year where I'll be talking about this kind of thing. So make it count. We really need to hit our goals. We need to, uh, we need to make this really work. So thanks. I wrote a book. You can read my book. It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. I don't know where I got that name. And that is available wherever books are sold. It's a memoir. It's about uh, my experiences with depression. It's about my conversations with lots of famous people about depression and uh, people say they got a lot out of it. So that is the hilarious world of depression wherever books are sold. Be sure to hit subscribe on Depression Mode. Give us five stars, write reviews. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. 
If you're on Facebook, look up the aforementioned mental health discussion group, Preshies. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search it up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, Credits listeners. Sometimes when you talk about your show a lot as part of a large-scale funding drive for that show, you start to feel a bit like an auctioneer, except the thing you're auctioning is positive mental health. And I think that would be Positive Mental Health would be a good name for a large cow. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings Hey, this is Kelsey from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm here to tell you, go finish that creative project you're working on. No matter how bad or dumb you think it is, the world is a better place with your creative perspective in it, and we need it. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.